In the early 80s, there was a gentleman by the name of John Scully. John was a very successful businessman. In fact, he was the president of Pepsi, Pepsi-Cola. And uh, there was a gentleman about the same time out on the West Coast who uh, had started this, uh, this fledgling company. And he, he, had, he had seen John, seen him work, and, and thought he would be a great one to lead this company to the next level. So he sets up a meeting and goes and visits John, and, and he says, the first thing that I was worried, he says, John, do you really want to sell sugared water for the rest of your life, or do you want a chance to change the world? So why would a guy who had all this success, uh, a, a president of a major company, his security, uh, the future was, was secure, everything was going right, why would he take a chance and leave all that to go to this little startup company out on the West Coast? And the answer is simple, for the chance to change the world. Jesus gave this same chance to the disciples. He gave them an opportunity to be world changers, to give up what they knew best, give up their job, the security of where they were, to follow him and be world changers. Now, our today, today's text is out of Matthew chapter 16. And previous to this time, uh, Jesus had spent a lot of his time teaching the masses, large groups of people. But we're going to see, see a shift in his ministry, and he's going to spend more time uh, looking at, or speaking to his disciples because he knew if he wanted them to be the world changers he called them to be, he was going to have to spend some time training them. Because you see, the problem with being a world changer is you have to be different from the world. If you look like the world, if you sound like the world, if you act like the world, you have no chance to change the world. And Jesus knew this. So he gives them a blueprint of what it meant to be a world changer. And this is out of Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus is speaking, and he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This blueprint that he gave the disciples is the same blueprint that he gives to us today. For us to be followers of Christ, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow me. Matthew Henry said the first lesson in Christ's school is self-denial. So Jesus' first lesson to his, to his disciples, self-denial. The first lesson for us as Christians, self-denial. We give up control of our lives to Jesus. But I think there are a lot of misconceptions on what denying oneself means. When I say you must deny yourself, you must give up uh, your sinful nature, you must submit to the lordship of Christ, the first thing that might pop into your mind is all the things that you have to give up. I think most non-Christians, as well as some Christians, believe that to deny myself, that means I can't have any fun. I have to give up all these things uh, to be a follower of Christ. I can't eat good food. I can't uh, go to movies anymore. I can't listen to secular music. And I certainly can't drink a glass of wine. But the problem with that theology, it's just simply not true. This isn't what Jesus is trying to tell us here in, in, the, in, uh, in the scripture. 
He simply wants us to make him the Lord of our lives. We no longer should live for ourselves and our selfish ambitions. Everything we do should pass through the filter of the Holy Spirit. Now let that sink in a little bit. Everything that we do should pass through the filter of the Holy Spirit. A few few years ago, there was this popular saying, uh, and it was WWJD. Everybody remember what that stood for? What would Jesus do? But I think the real question isn't so much what would Jesus do in these circumstances, but what would Jesus have me do in our circumstances? In every circumstance of life, everything that I go through, our minds need to be set on what would be pleasing to God. So it is quite possible that we have to give some things up. Not because I have to to be saved. Not because I have to to earn Jesus' love. And not because I need to do that to get a better standing in the kingdom. But simply because I love Jesus. And I want to please him. So I don't have to give up going to movies. But maybe I do give up going to the ones that have nudity or sexual content in them. Because I know that what goes into my mind is what I'm going to be thinking about. And it will eventually lead to sin. So I need to guard myself in those, those, uh, with those movies. Maybe I don't list, uh, stop listening to secular music. But maybe I do stop listening to the ones that degrade women or have vulgar or profane language. What goes in is going to come out. Understand, I'm not giving these things up to earn anything. God, through Jesus, has already paid the price. I'm simply putting God's will above my own. We are living in a me-first society, and Satan is constantly trying to deceive us into thinking that we deserve to indulge ourselves. We deserve to live selfishly, to do what feels good, uh, no matter what the cost. As long as it makes us happy, do it. Ladies and gentlemen, don't be deceived. That is one of Satan's great lies. We cannot please ourselves all the time and please God. God has called us to be different from the world, to deny ourselves, and in so doing, because it is so different from the world, when we deny ourselves, we make a difference in the world. We have an effect on those around us simply by the choices that we make. And as a bonus, we receive the blessings that go along with God, putting God first in our lives. There are huge benefits to denying ourselves and obeying God. Not only is our eternity secure, but we most assuredly will be blessed here on earth. Jesus came so that we could have life and have it to the full. He wants his children to enjoy life. One of the things that this little brain episode I had over the summer did was affect my senses. Most of your senses are located or controlled by a little spot in the back of your brain, and that's where my little abscess was. And it negatively affected my eyesight. Can't see quite as well as I did, but it positively affected my taste buds. Go figure. And my smell. I can smell things better. Uh, Not always a good thing, uh, 
but uh, the, the, the taste is amazing. There are things that I, I used to love, and now it's like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. Uh, so God gave us those things. He gave us taste buds to be able to taste and enjoy. He gave us our senses to be able to enjoy what's around us. God wants us to be happy. In denying ourselves, we not only give up uh, what, what we, uh, ourselves, but, but we give up the direction of our lives. Has anybody ever seen the, uh, the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? used to be fairly common around uh, a few years ago. And, and in, the, in that, we get the image of we're in a plane, and we got our hands by the, on the wheel, and we are in control, and God's over here as a co-pilot. I think God would be offended by that bumper sticker. God does not want to be our co-pilot. He wants to be the aircraft. He doesn't want to be part of the process. He wants to be the process. So instead of asking him every time something happens in my life that isn't quite to what I thought it should be, instead of asking why, maybe the question should be how. Lord, how can I honor you through this circumstance, in this circumstance? What do you want to teach me through this circumstance? Self-denial is a crucial part of our Christian walk. John Wesley put it this way, and so much that as far as we do not do it, we are not his disciples. Jesus actually put it another way. You cannot serve two masters. Either God is on the throne, or someone or something else is. But after all this, if you still can't get past the idea that to be a follower of Christ, I have to give up too much, then go ahead and go there. I want you to think about some things that you give up to be a follower of Christ. Like health. Eternal punishment, unquenchable fire, with no hope, kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? So are you different from the world? Would, you, would people recognize you simply by the choices you make? Do you love Jesus enough that you willingly and want to give up worldly sin and sinful pleasures. We are called to be different from the world, to be world changers. But to do this, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him.
to find ourselves, to give ourselves meaning in life, the tendency is to want to affirm ourselves. This whole passage is about finding who you are, finding your true self. And in order to find it, Jesus says exactly the opposite of what we want to do, which is to affirm ourselves. He says to deny yourself. That's what Tim has just explained to you. But the question is, how do we deny ourselves? What, what does that look like? What's the picture that Jesus gives us? And it's that second phrase. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? We've muddied the waters, haven't we, with this word cross. When you hear the word cross, you think of a symbol that is put on a building or on a church stage. You think of uh, a piece of jewelry that somebody wears around their neck. You think of something that is put in a logo so that business people will get credibility with people that believe the same way they do, right? And so cross to us just means spiritual stuff. What did it mean when Jesus uttered these words for the very first time to the people that were listening, take up your cross? The original hearers of Jesus, keep in mind, The cross of Jesus had not happened yet. And although this may have been a personal, prophetic thing Jesus had in mind that he had to go to a cross, when he uttered these words, take up your cross, his original hearers had no reference point for that. They did not know that Christ was going to die on a cross. The only reference point they had was this way that Romans executed people. If you were condemned to die in the Roman Empire... You were crucified until you were dead. They would have one who was to be executed literally carry his own crossbar, the crossbar that he would be nailed to. He had to carry that to the place of execution. Can you imagine the modern equivalent of that? We're going to hang you by the neck until you're dead. Here, we want you to tie the noose. We're going to put you in front of a firing squad because you are condemned to die. Before we do, we need you to load the bullets in the gun. We're going to put you in this chair because you have been sentenced to death. And we're going to electrocute you. And before we do that, before we can flip the switch, we need you to connect these two wires. The bottom line is that this is humiliation poured on top of condemnation. It is forced submission. It is defeat. It is a picture of suffering and pain. And this is the picture that Jesus gives his hearers when he says, take up your cross. When they heard cross, they meant they, they heard somebody's going to die. When they heard, take up your cross, they understood it was them that Jesus wanted to die. So, Jesus uses this picture for those who want to come after him. If you want to come after me spiritually, you must become like a criminal bearing his cross. You must become like someone who is on a one-way journey from which he will never return, who has literally embraced and carried his fate of death. That's what it means to take up your cross. The bottom line is to take up your cross means becoming dead to yourself becoming dead to your own will, to be able to lay your life 
down. And that goes against every natural tendency and inclination that we have. Our inclination is to affirm ourselves. It's to leverage the situation to get ahead. Our urge is to produce and to grow. Our propensity is to fight and to succeed. And all of those are fine. But if we're doing them so that we can prove that we have value and meaning, that's where Jesus says you're, you're off course. The way you find yourself is to give up and die. But we don't want that. And that's where Peter is coming from. Just before these words come out of Jesus' mouth, there are two pictures that we need to understand in order to understand what Jesus has just said. And the pictures both involve Peter. The first picture starts in verse 13 of chapter 16 of Matthew. Where Jesus comes, Kevin uh, explored this a couple weeks ago. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And his disciples say, well, the people say that you're kind of like uh, John the Baptist reincarnated. Or maybe some of them say you're Elijah or some of them say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Peter stands up and he realizes maybe for the first time who Jesus really is. And he says these words, no, you are the son of of God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's a tremendous moment for Peter because he realizes for the first time that Jesus isn't just a prophet, that he's so much more than a prophet. Do you realize what prophets do? Prophets always point forward to salvation. But Jesus, Peter realizes, never points forward to salvation. Jesus always points to himself as salvation. A prophet says, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus has always said, I say to you. A prophet has said, here's how to be saved. Jesus comes and says, I am going to save you. You see the difference? And for the first time, Peter realizes Jesus is much more than a prophet. He is the son of the living God. And because he recognizes this, Jesus praises Peter with arguably the greatest praise That has ever been given to a person. He says this. Blessed are you Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father who is in heaven. And I tell you Peter. uh, You are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. In other words what Jesus is saying is. What you have said Peter. Is the key for everyone. Unless everyone understands That I came not to say, here's the way, go strive and and go try to succeed and go try to do this and then you might be saved. No, you need to understand that I came to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. I am your salvation. And until you understand that, you're not in the church. Until you understand that, you cannot be a Christian. And that's why Peter gets so much praise. And so Jesus says one of the highest things that he ever says to anybody. And then the second picture happens. Not not two seconds later, the second picture happens. Jesus gives his plan for victory, his plan for triumph, his plan for um, winning, right? This is the blueprint. And, and if you're a disciple, you're excited right now because we have officially Uh, uncovered that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so now, holy Batman, I mean, we are going to storm the castle of evil. 
right? We are going to oust the Romans. We're going to march into the Holy Land and we're going to take back what's ours and we're going to be able to worship in the temple and nobody's going to be able to stop us and we're going to be able to worship our God in the way we see fit and nobody's going to have their boot on our neck. So what's the plan, Jesus? We're excited. We're listening. And here's what Jesus said. Here's how I will overcome evil. Here's how I will save everyone. Here's how I will fix a broken planet. And they say, yes, yes, we're ready, we're ready. He says this. I have to be defeated. I'm going to be weak. I have to be humbled. I'm going to be tortured. And I'm going to allow myself to be killed. I will be utterly defeated. And that will be my triumph. Now put yourself in the apostle's shoes. I mean, be honest. What would your response be? I can answer that. It would be the same as Peter's. In verse 22, Peter says, no way. Uh Uh-uh. It's not going to be like that. It's not going to play out like that. That is not the way this happens, Jesus. You do not need to be killed. You are the son of God. We're going to march into Jerusalem and do whatever you want to do. But being killed is not the way we, we accomplish things. Jesus, after he says the greatest thing to Peter, he probably says the harshest thing to anyone he's ever said. And he turns and he looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. The word is scandalon. It means you are a temptation to me. And you cannot put Satan and temptation in the same sentence without thinking about Matthew chapter 4, where Satan was in the wilderness with Jesus, tempting him. Right? The reason Jesus equates Peter with Satan is that he does the exact same thing that Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Do you remember what Satan tried to do? He tried to come to Jesus and say, Do you want a kingdom? Great. I'll give it to you. And you don't have to suffer for it. You don't have to go to the cross to make this work. You don't have to follow God's plan. Just bow to me. I'll give it all to you, and it will be easy. And you won't have a cross. You won't have any suffering. And Jesus said, no. That's not God's will. That's not God's plan. And Peter says the same thing to Jesus that Satan did. Do it my way. The cross isn't necessary, and it's at this point that Jesus turns to the rest of his disciples and delivers this great line that we're all looking at today. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and he must follow me. There's no such thing as Christianity without a cross. The cross is dying. The essence of Christianity is dying. It's what led Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he wrote his Cost of Discipleship book to conclude, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what he's asking of us. You want to follow Christ? Die. The problem is, when troubles come, there will always be this Satan voice in your head that says what Peter was thinking. Surely this isn't the way. Oh, surely this isn't the way to victory. There can't be any triumph in this weakness, in this suffering, in this defeat. And like Peter, we want to lash out at God and say, no, uh uh-uh, it's not going to play out that way. 
And all we've done when we do that is proven that we don't know how Christianity works. You see, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer because it's only through suffering that the kingdom of God advances and triumphs and overcomes. When you suffer, when I suffer, we too have the chance to become like Jesus. That's why Paul prayed in Philippians, I want to know his sufferings and become like him. Why in the world would you pray that prayer? Why would we want to pray that prayer? Because we understand that suffering and dying are the only way that the kingdom advances. It's the only way it triumphs. It's the only way it wins. And the picture for suffering and dying is a cross. Take up your cross. And this has to be the very lifeblood of our walk, losing ourselves, picking up our crossbar, declaring ourselves to be dead to our own wills and strivings so that we can be alive to what Jesus has for us. It is just like a seed that must be buried in the ground before it can spring to life. It is just like a piece of grain that must be crushed before it can become bread. It is just like a grape that must be trampled on before it can become wine. It is just like a caterpillar that must be entombed in a cocoon before it can get out and fly. It is just like a piece of iron that must be thrown into the fire and forged in the fire before it can shine as a blade. It is just like a patient who undergoes surgery and he is cut open so that he may be healed. And so, too, a Christian must carry a cross to find true life. And once you die, your only option after that is to follow. Follow where? Follow him anywhere and everywhere. One of my favorite old hymns says it this way, Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. If you want to be Jesus' disciple, if you want to be this world changer that Tim referred to earlier, like he was a world changer, then you have to follow him wherever he leads you. I was thinking back to vacation Bible school this summer, and there was a day that my class was in the gym, the fifth grade class. We were there getting refreshments and enjoying some cookies and, and lemonade. And I noticed across the gym a younger class, probably the five-year-old class or, or thereabouts, they were playing the, the game Simon Says. You remember that game. You, you do only what Simon tells you to do. If Simon doesn't tell you to do it, then you don't do it. How long has it been since you played Simon Says? <laughs> stand up. Stand up. Everybody stand up. Come on. Simon Says, stand up. <laughs> We're going to play Simon Says, and there will be a point to it after the fact. Simon Says... Raise your left hand in the air. Simon says, raise your right hand in the air. Now Simon says, shake your hands and look at, look around and see all the charismatic worshipers we have here. (laughs) 
if you looked around, you just lost the game. Simon didn't tell you to look around. (laughs) Simon says, drop your hands. Simon says, put your right forefinger in your ear. Come on. Simon now says, put your left forefinger in your neighbor's ear. (laughs) No, no, not really. I'm teasing you. Simon didn't say that. Simon says, take your finger out of your ear. Okay, you can sit down. Simon did not tell you to sit down. (laughs) The five-year-olds are better at this game than you are. Simon says, sit down. The game's over. You get the idea here. You You get the point. You do what your leader tells you to do. You follow your leader. And in this case, Jesus is our leader. And the question is, are we going to follow him? Are we going to do what he tells us to do? If Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, are you going to do that? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to give heed to his instructions and do what he says and walk in his footsteps? If Jesus says, turn the other cheek and walk the second mile, are you going to do that? Are you going to follow your leader? If Jesus says, forgive those who have offended you as you have been forgiven, are you going to do that? Are you going to follow your leader? A true disciple will follow Jesus wherever he leads, even if it's a difficult path to follow. And Tim and Dusty have have hit on that very good this morning, that it's not an easy path that Jesus calls us to walk upon. If Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, are you going to do that? I'm thinking of Anna. I think Anna's back with the kids right now. Anna Toll is here today, and I'm thinking she's one who a few years ago heard the voice of God speaking to her, saying, go, go to Southeast Asia and preach the gospel. And you know what? She went. Though she was young, though she was single, though she was one who didn't know the language, She didn't know the culture there. When God, her leader, when Jesus, her leader, told her to go, she went. And she has been touching lives there because she went and because of him who is working through her. And plus, he blessed her, not just by touching lives for Jesus. As we found out recently, he's blessed her to meet her future husband. She's going to be married in just a a, a week or two away. When we follow our leader, Jesus, he blesses us and he uses us beyond our imagination. Now, granted, he may not call you to go to Southeast Asia. He may not call you to go to India. But I'm betting if we listen closely that we will find he is calling us to go to our neighbor, 
to go to our co-worker, to go to our classmate at school. He's calling us to go and share the truth with them. Question is, will you follow him? Will I follow him? Will we do what he's telling us to do? Will we go where he's telling us to go? And certainly the road that he leads us down may not be an easy road to travel. There may be some bumps along the way. There may be some bends in the road. There may be some hills to climb. There may be some chug holes. There may be some detours. There may be a cross there. Will you continue to follow your leader, Jesus, wherever he leads you? I was working on a Bible study this last week, and there was an exercise there that they wanted me to work on. And the exercise was simply this. It said for me to make a timeline of my life, my spiritual life, my journey with Jesus. Make a timeline of that and mark particularly the times of your spiritual growth. And so I took some time to think about that, reflecting back over my life, my spiritual journey in Christ. And I began to make that timeline. You know what I discovered? I discovered this. My times of greatest spiritual growth had a direct correlation with the times that I have been challenged and tested in my life. My greatest spiritual growth has been connected to those times that I've had to call out to him for help and lean on him the most. When trouble was near, I found that God was nearer. When times were hard, I found that God was stronger. When times in my life were uncertain, I found that God was rock solid and he never forsook me. And it was during those times of uncertainty that he carried me through and he grew me to be more like him. When times were lean, I found that he would provide and he is always more than enough. He is a leader worth following. What if he leads you down a difficult pathway? Will you follow him? Young people, if he leads you into the ministry, will you follow him there? How about this? If he leads you to stay in a marriage and to make it work, which means you will have to change yourself, will you follow him? If he leads you to start a new ministry here within our church, will you follow him? Or will you stay in your comfort zone and not take the risk? If he leads you to give more, to finally give a tithe of your income and stop excusing yourself for why you can't do that, will you follow him? If he leads you to be baptized... By immersion, will you follow him? You know, sometimes he leads us by this book right here, what's in the black and white. And if that is the case, if you open the pages of this book and you see the pathway that he wants you to walk, then you better follow him because his word does not change. 
Other times, he will lead you through his Spirit's prompting. And I will guarantee you, the Holy Spirit will never lead you somewhere contrary to what this book says. But as the Spirit prompts you to do the Father's will, the question is, will you follow him? Will you do what he's telling you to do? A disciple of Jesus will follow him wherever he leads. If he leads us down the pathway of persecution, we should follow him. If he leads us down the pathway of service and self-sacrifice, we should follow him. If he leads us to take a stand at school or at work, we should follow him. Let me read to you the words of that old hymn that I made reference to earlier. There's four stanzas. It goes like this. Stanza number one, take up thy cross and follow me, I heard my master say. I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. Verse two, he drew me closer to his side. I sought his will to know. And in that will, I now abide wherever he leads, I'll go. Verse three. It may be through the shadows dim or o'er the stormy sea, I take my cross and follow him wherever he leadeth me. Verse 4. My heart, my life, my all I bring to Christ who loves me so. He is my master, Lord, and King. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. A true disciple will deny himself, take up his cross daily, Luke says in his account, and will follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for making the message clear. Help us to obey. Help us to be ready to do what you have called us to do in these three areas, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.